0: Hello and welcome to Mending the Gap, your guide to women's mental health research. My name is Catherine Saunders and I will be your host. I'm a third year PhD student at the section of women's mental health at King's College London. In each episode, I'll be sitting down with the researchers themselves who are working to mend the gender gap in mental health research. In this episode, I'll be talking to Rachel Potterton, a PhD student at the Department of Psychological Medicine at King's College London. Rachel introduces us to the topic of eating disorders and her own research on the importance of a life phase called emerging adulthood. Please be aware that eating disorders are discussed in detail in this episode. Hi, Rachel. Thanks so much for sitting down with me today. Thanks for having me. Could you tell us a bit about your academic journey that got you interested in researching eating disorders?
1: Yeah, so originally in my undergrad, I was very focused on doing English literature and my university had a joint programme where you could do another subject as well. And I thought, oh, I'll give psychology a go, but did some modules in clinical psychology and kind of decided that was the path I kind of wanted to follow. So then after that, I did a master's in mental health studies at the IOPPN, enjoyed that, but then kind of post that just needed a job in something vaguely psychology related. So the first job I got was in an eating disorder ward, an inpatient ward. And I guess going into that, I was kind of naive and had certain ideas about what eating disorders were. So I kind of thought I was, you know, I was only 22, but I assumed all the patients would be younger than me. And maybe that this was um, a transient thing that people um, kind of recovered from quickly, I guess but quickly had those ideas pretty much turned on their head. Um, In terms of the patient age group, you know, there was obviously people who were younger, but a lot of the patients were a good deal older and had been experiencing eating disorders throughout their life and had been in and out of hospital or had stayed in hospital for years and years and years. And also, I think I was just struck by how severe they could be, that there was a threat to life, that people were kind of um, in such a poor physical condition that they were... In danger of dying from it. So I guess I was kind of um, struck by how um, bad things were for this patient group and started thinking about, you know, what's going on here. was starting to read research papers and stuff when I saw a job advertised as a research assistant in the section of eating disorders here at the IOPPN. Went for that, was lucky enough to get it That research was kind of looking at online interventions for eating disorders, which obviously, you know, have their place are really important. But as a researcher, it can be quite um, the trials don't involve much patient contact and they're kind of um, a bit removed from the coalface. So did that for a while. But then the opportunity came up to apply to do a Ph.D. with my current supervisor, um, Ulrika, who I knew to be. I knew she would be a great Ph.D. supervisor. And the project that she was kind of looking for a student for was very much um, aligned with my interests. It was looking at early intervention, so people in the early stages of illness kind of focusing on preventing this kind of chronic um, illness that I'd seen in the ward. It was very focused on the psychosocial end of things as opposed to the biological stuff, which is not so much my interest. Um, And it was also mixed methods, Um, so I'm really into qualitative research, so that was kind of perfect for me. So yeah, I applied, I prepared for the interview, and I was lucky enough to get that PhD. So that was kind of two years ago, so I have one year left to go now. It sounds
0: like your experience
1: in between your
0: undergrad and applying for the research assistant post really helped you learn more than maybe what you'd expected from eating disorders or from a clinical placement or something like that.
1: Yeah, completely. It completely... I guess, changed my... I had no exposure to eating disorders before that, I guess. But yeah, it completely changed how I thought about those disorders and was kind of just impressed upon me, the kind of need for new approaches to kind of treatment and intervention in eating disorders. So what kind of eating disorders are there? So eating disorders are a collection of diagnoses, all of which are characterised by body image disturbances. So maybe someone being very preoccupied with their weight or their shape... Um, having maybe distorted ideas about what they look like. And that's the kind of psychological component, but then the behavioural component is disturbances of eating behaviour. So that's kind of a spectrum where at one end we have people who really restrict their food intake, and at the other end we have people who maybe overeat or binge. Um, Alongside that, you might have what we call compensatory behaviours, which are things that people do to try and kind of counteract the effects of food. So that would be things like vomiting, using laxatives or diuretics. In terms of specific diagnoses, we have anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and as of 2013, I think, which is when the DSM-5 came out, we have binge eating disorder. So they're the main three, and then if someone doesn't necessarily fit that well into those categories, they can be diagnosed as having OSFED, which is otherwise specified feeding and eating disorder. And how common are these disorders? So that varies kind of depending on who you measured in and how you measure it. But a recent um, systematic review found that there's a lifetime prevalence of 8% in women and 2% in men. So that's quite considerable, kind of almost 1 in 10 women will experience an eating disorder at some point in their life. That's quite a frightening statistic. Mm. And
0: can you talk a little bit about what the potential outcomes could be for someone with an eating disorder?
1: Um, If someone is in the early stages of illness, there's a lot of... um, psychological uh, spin-offs, I guess. Um, so you're likely to be quite depressed, quite anxious. You might be experiencing suicidal thoughts. People tend to withdraw from their uh, friends and family. And then physically, if someone is at the anorexia or kind of under-eating end of the spectrum, they're likely to be kind of quite tired, lethargic, feel weak, uh, struggle with concentration. But I think the key thing with eating disorders is um, the longer they're allowed to persist, the worse the effects So if, for instance, with anorexia, if someone is essentially um, starving themselves over a prolonged period, um, that affects all of the organs in the body. So you're thinking about the brain, kidneys, liver, bones, kind of fertility is affected. Um, So there can be really kind of profound effects, Um, which is why combining the psychological impact and the physical impact of anorexia, it actually has the highest mortality rate of any uh, mental illness.
0: I think that the information about mortality is quite surprising to quite a lot of people. I don't think that's a very well-known piece of information.
1: Yeah, it's through a combination of, I guess, suicide, but then also um, the physical consequences of this illness, yeah. So
0: we're going to talk about a piece of work you've conducted, which is a narrative synthesis of literature, which explored eating disorders during a life phase called Emerging Adulthood.
1: Could you tell us a bit more about the background to conducting this study? The kind of starting point for this research was that we know that people who experience eating disorders during the transition to adulthood seem to have like a particularly um, rough time of it compared even to... Young people under 18 and people over 25. So we're talking about kind of the 18 to 25-year-old age group. They come to services with the longer um, duration of untreated illness, so they've been suffering for longer. They don't do as well in treatment. So thinking about why that is, there's probably lots of reasons, but one reason is potentially that how we think about this life stage has changed a lot, but our services are kind of based on outdated ideas of adulthood. Historically, we kind of considered that people became adults at 16 or 18 and people tended to get married young. They tended to enter the workforce quite young, but we've changed how we perceive this time. Developmental psychologists now talk about emerging adulthood as this kind of distinctive life stage, which is different from adolescence and is different from adulthood. So, for instance, emerging adults are kind of in between adolescence and adulthood. They don't have any of the restrictions that adolescents tend to have in terms of their parents watching over them, kind of not being legally able to buy cigarettes, smoke, um, drink, drive. But they also don't have the responsibilities of adulthood, so they're not yet married, they don't have mortgages, they don't tend to have kids. So that means their lives are much more kind of unstable and flexible in the sense that they don't have things holding them down, maybe moving location a lot, they're changing jobs, they're kind of changing relationships. So it's kind of a period of flux and change. Alongside that, their brain is still developing. So we know that the prefrontal cortex continues to develop into the 20s. Um, And that's a part of the brain we know is involved in um, like planning and decision making. So we've kind of these distinctive characteristics of this life stage that don't really map on to how we provide eating disorder services at the moment. So for instance, at the moment, um, people transition from adolescent services to adult services on their 18th birthday. And those services are different in important ways. So it's not just a label thing. How they approach treatment is quite different. So for instance, in adolescent care, often there's a focus on family therapy and kind of Rallying the family around to support the young person. Whereas in an adult service, it's one on one therapy generally, and it's about kind of supporting the person to make their own changes and kind of assess their behaviour and make the changes that they need to. So the idea is that maybe there's this mismatch between the capabilities or where the emerging adult is in life and how we assume them to be based on the services that we provide. So that was kind of the starting point for the review. It was thinking, this might be happening, what do we know about it in the research literature? What research has been done looking at eating disorders during emerging adulthood?
0: And the method that
1: you've used for this study is called a systematic scoping review. What does this entail? So if you're familiar with a systematic review, that typically is trying to answer like a specific research question. So it might be um, what's more effective um, in the treatment of bulimia, like CBT or DBT? A scoping review is different in that it attempts to answer like a broader question. So for instance, with mine, it's this, what do we know about eating disorders during emerging adulthood? And I think the reason you might ask a broader question is because if you know that it's quite a new field and there's not the research there to answer a specific question. So you're trying to bring together a new and sometimes kind of diverse field. And that filters through in terms of how you define your inclusion criteria and how you define your exclusion criteria. So you might include a really broad range of papers. For instance, in mine, I kind of included things like unpublished dissertations, conference abstracts and had as few um, exclusion criteria as possible. So in order to cover as much as possible, you included things
0: that aren't just in journals, for example. Yeah,
1: yeah. So there's altogether kind of less of a focus maybe on finding the best quality of research. It's more kind of getting a sense of all of the research out there. Yeah, that sounds like a really good strategy
0: for something where we maybe don't know as much or you're going on more of a kind of exploration.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because if you asked a specific question, you might only have kind of two studies or something, which is not necessarily that useful. And what did your study find? So we found that actually there's very little research in this area, that eating disorder researchers haven't really adopted this idea of emerging adulthood and haven't really looked at it in great detail. Um, But when um, the studies that have looked at it have found important differences, some of the things that are relevant to eating disorders in adulthood and adolescence are also relevant during emerging adulthood. But things that are specific to this life stage um, also seem to matter. So things like identity development, the transition to university seem to be associated with eating disorder symptoms. There's also a bit of evidence that eating disorder services that make an effort to adapt their treatment and their service to the needs of emerging adults tend to see better outcomes for those patients. So a lot of that evidence comes from the service here at the Maudsley, which has an early intervention stream for young people, for emerging adults experiencing eating disorders. And they've made a lot of efforts to kind of adapt the treatments they provide to emerging adults um, to that specific age group with good, um, with promising results.
0: I suppose... What the literature is saying is that if you account for this life phase, there's potential for a better outcome after treatment.
1: Yeah, exactly. It seems to make a difference if you take into account what's going on in the broader context for these people. What are the clinical implications of the results from this study? So I guess we need a lot more research before we can be sure. But I think um, something worth considering is thinking about the extent to which we include caregivers in the treatment of emerging adults. I think it's likely that it's appropriate that they be included at a level that's not quite at what they are during adolescent treatment, but more so than they are in a typical adult treatment. So thinking about how that might work practically, sometimes it may just be about offering for the young person to you know, maybe bring a caregiver to their first assessment if they want and um, There's also some new research thinking about how to um, adapt family therapy to emerging adults, so that's kind of promising and like an interesting way forward. Another thing is that emerging adults seem to move location constantly. They're moving to university, they're moving home for the summer, they're changing jobs, they're changing cities. So that's happening all the time, and it seems to be when things go a bit kind of wobbly in terms of recovery. So I think services need to think more about how They kind of make those transitions smoother um, and how they kind of support young people as they move from place to place and from service to service. It seems like
0: it's an area where people will really benefit from a more from more connected care.
1: Yeah, definitely. And sometimes it may be good to have like parallel care where someone can access care in two places at the one time. So, for instance, if someone is in university, but then going home for quite an extended period, that might make sense.
0: And given what you found, what's next for the research in this area, do you
1: think? So I guess something I'm particularly interested in is this idea of kind of instability and all the change that is happening for emerging adults. So one of the main studies of my PhD is looking at the impact of um, changes and life events that happen um, while a person is in treatment, um, looking at the impact of those on how well people do with treatment. So whether there's maybe certain types of life events that are linked with people doing better or maybe doing worse um, while in therapy. So that involves me essentially interviewing lots of people who've been through treatment um through the FREED program and um, kind of asking them what life events have happened and seeing how that maps onto treatment outcomes.
0: Is there a connection between life events and this particular life phase of emerging adulthood?
1: Yeah so emerging adults have far more life events than other groups so particularly things like um, moving house, relationship breakups, kind of starting new courses, starting new jobs Um, and then of course things like sexual assault as well are also really prevalent in this age group.
0: And for you so you know we started with your journey to your PhD and you've got about a year left of your PhD so what could be next for you?
1: Yeah, so one year left, um, Finish my PhD, go on a nice holiday. Um, yeah, so I think what I ultimately would like to do is a job that kind of combines maybe some kind of cl- clinical practice with research. And I think the natural step forward is to kind of do the doctorate in clinical psychology. So yeah, another three years of study for me potentially, fingers crossed. <laughs> if someone was
0: listening to this and was really interested in what we've talked about, which I'm sure they will be, What resources would you recommend that they have a look at to learn a little bit more? Mm
1: -hmm. Um, So a great one is the BEAT website. So BEAT is the UK's main eating disorder charity. Um, They've got loads of stuff on there. It's really informative. Um, Also, I think I mentioned... the free service in the Maudsley, the early intervention service. So they have their own website, and there's loads of free resources on there. And um, you don't have to be receiving treatment through the Maudsley; you can just access it anyway. So Louis Theroux has a great documentary on anorexia. I don't know if it's it's probably still available somewhere online called "Talking with Anorexia." I think um, I read a memoir recently by Roxanne Gay called "Hunger," which has kind of um, taught me a lot about kind of weight stigma and kind of the experience of being overweight or living in a larger body. So that was interesting. I don't know if you watched the um, documentary by Jesse Nelson and Little Mix last Mm. week. It wasn't about eating disorders per se. It was more about online bullying, I guess. But I thought it was quite um, insightful in terms of um, body dissatisfaction and kind of how impactful that can be. Um, So it's worth a look, I think. And we've touched on a
0: difficult topic this episode and a, a subject that affects a lot of people. So what organisations would you recommend for support if somebody listening has been affected by
1: what we've talked about today? Um, yeah, so the BEAT website, again, is a great place um, to go. They've got um, a helpline as well, so lots of information on there. And, of course, if you kind of have concerns about yourself, um, do the GP as the first port of call. Great. Well, thank you, Rachel. This has been really, really interesting. <laughs>
0: So, there we have it, a whistle-stop tour of eating disorder research. Thank you again to Rachel for joining me and sharing her PhD research so far with us. We wish her the best of luck for the final year of her doctorate. The resources for support suggested by Rachel can be found in the show notes for this episode. Please do rate and review, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter, our handle is at mendthegappod, and join the conversation using hashtag mendingthegap. We'll be back with a brand new episode very soon. Thank you for listening.